The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, October 7th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. This morning we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses, well, the second half of verse 18 through verse 26. And what we're going to do is we're going to read these verses. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into them together. So Philippians chapter 1, we'll pick up in the second half of verse 18, because whether you knew this or not, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers in the Bible are not inerrant or authoritative in the same way that the words of the Bible are. They were put there hundreds of years later to try to help us find things in the Bible. People used to have to memorize entire books of the Bible to remember where things were and how things went, and so they put chapters and numbers to better index those things so they could be referred to and found more quickly. And as soon as that happened, we found things easier and quit memorizing as many things. So I don't know what was better, but this particular verse kind of cuts right in the middle and you could argue it, it could shift or move a phrase or two. So we're going to start in the second half of verse 18 because it, it really kind of carries this thought forward. So second half of verse 18 through verse 26. Here's God's word this morning. Paul says, yes, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope, <coughs> excuse me, that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you again for the tremendous privilege that it is to be gathered together here this morning. We don't take that for granted whatever you are doing in each and every single heart here to stir us and bring us together to hear from you through your word. We are grateful. And we're here this morning asking that you would do the miraculous that only you can do and you would bring a stillness to our hearts, a surrender to our hearts that we might hear your voice and your word and that you, by your spirit, would do the work of conforming us into the image and likeness of your son. That's what we want. It takes you and your work for that to happen. And so we ask in the time that we have left, you would do that in Jesus' name for his glory and our joy. Amen. If not the best-selling, at least the top two or three best-selling, one of the best-selling books out right now for individuals or business on, on purpose, on direction, begins this way, and you might be familiar with it. It's one of life's greatest joys to wake up in the morning every morning with a clear sense of why that day matters, better yet, why every day matters. Some people call it a purpose. Some people call it an overriding ambition. Some people call it overriding priorities. The writer of this book, you're probably familiar with him, his name is Simon Sinek. 
third most viewed TED speaker in all the history of TED, number one best-selling book out there right now on these things. He calls it your why. But all the people are trying to say the same thing. Everyone operates with some organizing framework for their life. Some filter that your thoughts and your decisions and your priorities go through. And it shapes what you do and how you do it and why you do it at home, at work, in all the different environments of your life. There are priorities that shape and impact how and why you do what you do. Now, all these different authors, they may have different titles for it. They may call it different things. And they all do it because if they all agreed on the one thing, you wouldn't have to write any more books. So they've all got to figure out how to differentiate each from each other. And so you may have gone through the exercise at work or in a book that you read where you had to, to envision your funeral and you had to imagine what people would say about you. And you go through the exercise of writing your own eulogy because the point is trying to get after the reality of what mattered most to you because that's what you wanted to be remembered by. And if you could walk out of that exercise with that picture, you could then kind of reverse engineer your remaining days to get to that end. And whether that's the best way to go about it, whether that's a, a good way to go about it, whether it's called this or it's called that, you can disagree on all of those things, but the one thing that everyone agrees upon is that it's an important realization to come to. And this morning in these verses, these, these few verses in the beginning of this letter, we get to hear from the Apostle Paul, and we get to hear what his organizing ambition is, what his overarching purpose is, what his why is, if you like that language. And contrary to popular opinion, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to encourage you this morning to make Paul's ambition your ambition. You don't sell a lot of books doing that either. You're supposed to come up with your own unique thing that makes your day different. I'm going to encourage you this morning to make Paul's overriding ambition, Paul's organizing priorities, Paul's why, if you like that, your why, your ambition. And if you remember when Paul is writing this, he's in prison. He doesn't know if he still has 60 more years on this earth or if he has 60 more months or 60 more weeks or 60 more days or 60 more hours or 60 more seconds. At any moment, chained up right there to a member of the Praetorian Guard, someone could come right into the room with the verdict on Paul's life. That's where he is when he writes this. And as it was said so clearly in his last days by Steve Jobs. All external expectation, all semblance of pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, it all just fades away in the face of death. And all that you're left with is what's truly important to you. What truly matters, how you organized and went about the life that you live. And what pours out of Paul in this letter, in that moment, facing the verdict on his life, was his organizing principle, his driving ambition. And here it is, verse 20. Look at it. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always... So nothing new. Now, right now, where I am in this situation, chained up, not knowing what's going to happen, is the same as it was before. This has always been it. 
Christ will be honored, highly exalted, some of your translations say, magnified, caused to be seen as great as he truly is. Pick your word. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. In everything that he does, in everything that he says, in the ways that he acts, in the way that he uses his bodies, all the faculties that God has given him on this earth, whatever he drinks, whatever he eats, however he does it, he told the church in Corinth, all of it has had one overriding ambition. That Jesus would be rightly reflected in his life as glorious. That in what he said and what he did, he would reflect the worth of Jesus. It's his eager expectation and hope now, sitting there in prison, just as it had always been, that with full courage in all that he does, Christ will be highly honored. It's a comprehensive statement. It's not just a momentary indication of where he is at that point in his life. The language he's using is saying, this is the overarching thing. This has shaped the way that I've lived. This is the filter that all of my decisions, my priorities have gone through. This is what judges how I respond and how I have responded to different circumstances and situations. This is the purpose. This is the why. This is the thing. That Jesus would be highly exalted in me. That my life would reflect his worth. Friends, in another letter to the church in Corinth, Paul's going to say something, and we talk about it around here a lot. It, it goes with this. It, he understands that by the grace of God, he is now an ambassador for Jesus wherever he is. If you go read these verses that we're looking at this morning, and everywhere you see him refer to Christ, if you just switch that word to king, because that's what that word ultimately means. It means Lord. It means king. If you switch it to king, you see that Paul was reflecting this sense of understanding of why he's here and what he's doing. He wants to represent his king well in all that he does. He wants the worth, the value, the glory of his king to be seen in how he lives and how he responds to his situation. That's what an ambassador is. In his affirmation, in his defense of the gospel, wherever he is, this is what he wants. And friends, the same holds true for you and I. By the grace of God, through faith in Christ, God has made us ambassadors of the gospel. And our lives are to be lived with the same overriding ambition. God did not make us covert operatives of the gospel. We're not spies for the gospel. We're not meant to slip in and slip out of different situations and circumstances, neighborhoods and offices and campuses and, and get in and get out unscathed and unknown. We often act like that, but that's not what God created us for. We're ambassadors to be identified by that king, known completely and fully by those around us of our joy and enjoyment and allegiance to that king, that we would represent him well. That in how we lived and why we lived and what we did and what we said, he would be highly exalted. He would be seen as worth it. So Paul gives us here this organizing principle, this main purpose, this great big why statement. But how do you actually make it a reality? And that's what happens with all those exercises if you read those books, right? Come up with how you make these statements and come to all these things, then you're left with a statement on a piece of paper. 
how do you actually do it? What actually gives it any kind of a life? What's like the wind in the sails of that statement, right? Well, here it is. This is what Paul's going to help us see. I'm going to summarize it, and then we're going to look at it. How do we do it? We do it by learning to enjoy Jesus more every day. It's really that simple. He is highly exalted in our body, in our life, or in our death. We live that overriding ambition out to reflect his worth day in and day out in everything we do by learning to enjoy him more every day. No one represents a country or a kingdom they're embarrassed to talk about. Every ambassador is ultimately in his purpose consumed with the worth and the value of the king and the kingdom that sent him to wherever he is. The same holds true for us. Listen to how Paul helps us with this. Back in verse 20, he says, With full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And then he gives us this word, for. Important word, for. It means because. So here's why I live this way. Here's how this begins to be accomplished in my life. Here's what makes that big overriding priority, that overriding purpose or reality come to life in me for live is Christ and to die is gain. If you put what he said together, Paul says, it's my eager expectation that Christ will be magnified, represented well in my body. Why? Because for me to live is Christ. And at the same time, it's my eager expectation that Christ will be magnified in my body in death. Why? Because death is gain. How is that possible? How is this going to happen, Paul? How do we actually live this thing out? What makes that a reality today, tomorrow, and the next day? How does that become the filter through which the priorities, the decisions, the actions get worked out? Well, it's possible when in our life something is more valuable to us than anything the world holds out. And it's possible in our death when something is more valuable to us than everything we have to leave behind. That's how it works out. This is what he's going to help them see. Watch this. Verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. Look what he says. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. I'm hard pressed between what I want. I'm not sure if I want to live and get out of here. I'm not sure if I just want to go ahead and die. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I die, my departure means I get to be with him, and that's better. You see, death becomes gain when death means an intimacy with the one that you enjoy the deepest. This thing gets legs on it and works itself out in our life. When in death we get to be in a unique way with the one that we enjoy more deeply than anything else. Paul is saying that for me to die is actually for me to experience a a oneness with Christ, the one who is my all-surpassing treasure, my greatest joy, so much so that I can call death gain even though I lose everything in the world. Even though I lose everything, in this world. 
reading this, you can't help but be left with the question, do, do I enjoy Jesus like this? Paul said to the church in Corinth, to be absent from this body is to be at home, present with the Lord. You read this story and you begin to ask yourself these questions. Do I love Jesus so much that losing everything, losing my own life to be with him would actually be gain to me? I read these verses and in my mind, I, I can't get out of my, my mind the picture from a couple of years ago of the Coptic martyrs on the edge of the sea in their orange jumpsuits on their knees with their executioners standing behind them and seeing that picture and, and reading these verses, reading this reality in Paul's life. I see that picture and realize that those men right there had determined in their hearts that Jesus was worth it, that he was worth more than life. He was worth more than another day with their family or whatever they could have done to avoid what they were going through. Another day with their wife and their kids for almost half of those men that day. Another day where they might have had the possibility of having a wife and children. In that culture, another day where those children might have given them grandchildren, which is the highest end in itself. That they enjoyed him so deeply that being with him was worth more than any of those things. For us, worth more than that perfect forever house. Getting that well-funded retirement. Fulfilling our sense of potential. They enjoyed him like but Paul did so deeply. That when you take all of the things that death takes from us, all the things that you lose in death, and you put them all on one side of a piece of paper, and you replace them on the other side with just one thing, with just Jesus, if you can say gain, that's what Paul is getting after. This is how Jesus is exalted in our body, in our death. When we enjoy him more than anything that death takes from us, this is what Paul is talking about. It's why I told you in the very beginning, I want you to make it your ambition to love Jesus and enjoy Jesus more than life itself. It's what I want for my own life. But it's not just death that makes it gain. Enjoying Jesus now leads to him being highly exalted in our life today. That's what he's talking about in verse 21 when he says, for me to live is Christ. You see, if, if death becomes gain by enjoying Jesus more than anything that death can take, then when Paul says living is Christ, that's when Jesus is gain now. When we enjoy him more than anything this life can give. Do you see the connection? If death becomes gain because we enjoy Jesus more than anything that death can take from us, life becomes Christ. We understand what Paul is saying when in this life now, we enjoy Jesus more than anything the world stands to give us, any promise it holds out to us. Paul's going to come back to this later in the letter in chapter 3, verse 8. He's going to say, I count everything as loss. Not some things, not this category of things, but everything as loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The way that Jesus increasingly becomes the deepest satisfaction in our life the way that we can say with Paul, to live is Christ, is by increasingly today, tomorrow, and the next day, seeing Jesus for who he is and enjoying him as gain right now. As that continues to happen, as that becomes the overriding ambition, as that becomes the organizing purpose, as that becomes the why, whatever language you're familiar with that you like, do you know what happens? Our choices begin to shift. Our priorities begin to shift. The way we speak begins to change. We increasingly reflect to a watching world the worth of Jesus, the one in whom we prize. We live as ambassadors who represent him well, in whom he is highly exalted. Why? Because we're increasingly learning to enjoy him more than anything the world holds out or anything that death can take. That's what Paul is talking about. Let me give you an example of how this kind of impacted his life and the way that he was able to respond to a circumstance in his life because of his joy in Jesus, his enjoyment of Jesus. If you remember last week, we said that while he's in prison, there were all these preachers, real preachers of the gospel, guys preaching the true and honest gospel, preaching the gospel, but at the same time slandering Paul, seeking to hurt Paul while he was in prison, undermining his reputation, undermining his ministry, he doesn't give us the details of what they were saying and what they were, what they were going after, but they were trying to make Paul look bad in the eyes of other people, even while they preached the gospel. But as this is Paul's overriding ambition, as this is that purpose for which he lived, that he would enjoy Jesus more deeply than anything else, it begins to change the way that you live. That's why Paul, you can look at it in verse 18. We'll say, in light of all these things, what they're saying about me, how they're trying to harm me, how they're trying to demean me, how they're trying to take away what I was able to do for the gospel, what do I say? Well, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. You see, to Paul, Jesus was more enjoyable. Jesus was more valuable than being right than having his particular gifts and ministry vindicated, than his potential as a pastor and church planner being fulfilled, than his ministry vision being executed, more enjoyable and valuable to Paul than a reputation in the eyes of other people was that Christ would be preached, that more would come to enjoy him, and in that he could rejoice. Why? Because for Paul, Jesus was more enjoyable than all those things. It begins to change everything about how we live. Christ is highly exalted in your body. Literally, when Paul says this, when in life you and I increasingly enjoy Jesus more than anything the world can offer. And death becomes gain as we increasingly enjoy Jesus more than anything death can take away. Friends, what is your driving ambition? 
primary purpose, navigating priorities. Why? Whatever you like, what is it? For some of you, it might already be well-crafted, typed out on a file, on your computer, up on your desk, at the office, whatever it may be. And guess what? It's probably okay. And if you put yourself to accomplishing it, you, you may very well do it. One of the books gives an example like this, to be respected by my peers for my accomplishments and provide a life for my family where they don't have to want for anything for two to three generations. Not bad things, good things. Applying yourself to it may be able to accomplish, but not ultimate things. Good things, but not meant to be ultimate things. Not yet capturing the end for which you were created. Not yet capturing the the purpose for which God created you. See, back in the 1600s, there were a group of pastors in England and in Scotland. They recognized that there was a fracturing happening in their churches. And so in an effort to try to reflect the unity of the gospel and the truth of the scriptures in their churches in England and Scotland, a collection of them got together. Theologians, pastors, and laymen got together. And over a period of five years, they hammered out this teaching document that they would teach in their churches in England and in Scotland that would, that would bring to life the fullness of the gospel and the unity in the gospel that is ours through faith in Christ. They came to be known as the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms. The shorter catechism would be used in church to teach children the truths of the gospel and the truths of the scripture. And the, the larger catechism was just teased out a little bit more in its explanations and, and scriptural proofs for adults. And in both catechisms, in trying to help the church come to unity in the gospel, they both started this way. What is the chief end of man? That's what we're talking about. That's what Paul's talking about. What's the purpose for which you were created? Understanding that becomes the organizing principle. That's what all the books are trying to get you to figure out. Understanding that becomes the why statement. It becomes the mission statement. It becomes whatever language you like. Get the answer to that question, and you'll be able to finish the exercise. That was the first question, and here's how they answered it. From Scripture, here was the answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what the church has been taught, well, since the beginning. But here's the thing. Oftentimes we see those things at odds. The chief end of man, the purpose for which I was created on some days is to glorify God, and then in other days if I have time to try to enjoy him. But that's not what they were saying. But I wasn't introduced to this kind of thing when I was younger. I I didn't come across statements like this until I was in my 20s. I got saved when I was 20 and I was in college. And when I was 22 years old, getting ready to graduate college, I had a professor. I, I changed my, my degree to a theology degree. And I had a professor who, who was not an Orthodox Christian any longer. Uh, he sat on the board of a group called the Jesus Seminar. And back in the 80s and 90s, it was a group of scholars and academics from America and Western Europe that sought to better justify and understand the supernatural in the Bible so that we would no longer understand it as supernatural. That was their aim. He was my advisor, and he gave me a book when I was graduating, right before the end of school, and he said, I don't like this book, but you might like it. I was like, okay, you know. I took the book, and this is the very first sentence in the book. This is the very first sentence. You might turn the world on its head, 
And quite literally, you can change that and say, you might turn your life on its head. Because that's what it did to me. But you might turn the world on its head by changing one word in the great teaching. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. God is most glorified, most highly exalted, like Paul is saying, in his life, in his body, and in his death. Most highly exalted, most glorified, most magnified, most made to be seen for who he is as you enjoy him now and forever. All of a sudden, those two things aren't at odds. All of a sudden, Paul's overriding ambition becomes clear. It makes sense. As you increasingly learn to enjoy who God is for us, most specifically as we see him in his son, as we come to enjoy Jesus, God is highly exalted. He's glorified in our life. He's glorified in our death when he's more enjoyable to us than anything life offers and anything death can take away. That turned my life, like the book said, on its head. It flipped everything about how I understood my life. I came to learn in the coming couple of years that it was these verses in the book of Philippians that turned that author's life on his head when he was 22. That shift in the language came from a guy you're probably familiar with named John Piper. He shifted that language when he was 22, after he came to realize this in Philippians chapter 1. It did the same thing through him in my life at 22. Because the reality of it was the Christianity of my childhood didn't sound anything like that. There was nothing about God being enjoyed. Nothing about Jesus being enjoyed. There were calls of commitment, commit to him in this and I would do it over and over again. Follow him in this and I would do it over and over again, but no talk of actually enjoying him. If I'm really honest to the way that I experienced the gospel, the way that I experienced Christianity, the primary pitch was here's my ticket out of hell. Jesus seemed to be the most suitable option to get me out of what I was most afraid of. And yes and amen, that is an aspect of the good news of the gospel. But if you're really honest with yourself, and you've got to be honest with yourself, you know it to be true, that you will be willing to receive a king, you would be willing to receive an authority if that king would keep you from what you were most afraid of, even if you didn't like him. Even if you didn't like him. If they could keep you from what you were most afraid of, you'd take them. And that was pretty much my experience of the gospel. I don't know that I like Jesus. I don't know that I like God. But he seems to be the most suitable one to keep me out of hell. So I'll pretty much do whatever he says, even if I don't like it, because I don't want to go to hell. And all of a sudden, I was confronted with a whole slew of commands in the Bible that all revolved around me enjoying God and enjoying Jesus. The psalmist says over and over again, delight yourself in the Lord. Paul, chapter 4, we're going to come back to it. Remember, this is the joy book. That's why we talk about this. In chapter 4, Paul's going to say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's not a suggestion. That's a biblical imperative. That's a command. In all things, you and I are to rejoice in the Lord. That's to show great joy. 
Rejoicing means to show, to express great joy. And as we've talked about already, biblical joy that we were created for sometimes is expressed in exuberance. Sometimes there is a delightful joy that just spills out of us, but other times biblical joy looks different. It's the steadying, anchoring, satisfying reality of knowing that God is who he has said he is, even while in the midst of sorrow, the tears are just falling. That's why Paul can say, I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, showing great joy, because sometimes that joy is just the steadying reality in the midst of sorrow, knowing that God is who he says he is. This is what joy is. It's what we were created for. And God calls us to his son, and he calls us to see in him a joy and a treasure that's greater than anything the world can hold out and anything that death can take away. And the message of the gospel, the message of the Bible, the message of Christianity is that this joy in Jesus is essential. It's what we were created for. And when Jesus is our greatest joy, God is most exalted, most highly exalted, most glorified in our life and in our death. That's what Paul is saying. That's his overriding ambition. That's what shapes why he does what he does. It's what shapes what he actually does. It's what shapes his understanding of his time and the days that God has given to him. I mean, listen to how it's reflected even here. Look at verse 24. Paul says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Look what he says. For your progress and, what's that word? Joy in the faith. See, that's what he's all about. Progress in the faith. Another way to talk about maturation. Another way to talk about becoming increasingly more and more like Jesus. It is a process of enjoying Jesus more. That's what it is. So Paul has made it his overriding ambition for God to be highly exalted in his life and through his life. And it happens as he enjoys Jesus increasingly more than anything in the world and anything that he could lose. And then he spends his time helping other people come to enjoy Jesus the same way. That's how it begins to guide everything. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we're workers with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. Working for faith is simply increasingly believing that Jesus is worth it, that he's your greatest joy. Standing firm in faith, fighting to stand firm in faith. All those phrases we get from what Paul said here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it's simply another way of saying fighting for joy. The enjoyment of God, the enjoyment of Jesus, not simply acquiescence to the fact that he might be the most suitable ticket out of hell, but actually enjoying him. I'll give you a story of how it began to come home to me finally. I read the book that Piper had written, flipped my head, flipped my life upside down. I packed my truck, January 1st, 67 degrees in Nashville, Tennessee, drove to Minneapolis, 15 degrees below zero. Was there for just over a year, 
And one time when, when, when Piper was teaching, because I had to learn more about this stuff. If that's what Christianity was, then I wasn't sure I was actually saved. And if this is what they were teaching and what they were doing, I had to go learn. And in one particular little class that he was teaching, he told this story, and it began to come home to me in an entirely different way. He told the story about teaching at a conference in Florida by, from a group called Ligonier Ministries, which some of you might be familiar with. Fantastic organization. R.C. Sproul was the head of that ministry, one of the best teachers the church has had in the last 75 years. He was hosting the conference. He was the first speaker. He got up to talk about the gospel and talk about faith. And if you've ever seen a video of R.C. Sproul, few people can teach like he can. So he's, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about faith. And he grabs a chair and he puts a chair over on the stage. And he's trying to, to give an example of, of faith. And he talks about faith being the willingness to sit down in that chair because you can believe that it can support you. And so he goes and he sits in the chair. And we're, we're hearing this story secondhand. And the story goes that while he was sitting in the chair, he said, now you actually know that I believe the chair can actually support me because I sat down in it. And that's how he's trying to explain faith. Well, the story goes that Piper was the second speaker. And they're old friends. They're good friends. They've known each other for a long time. They talk about all kinds of things. And, and here is what he said. He told us it's not always polite to correct your host, but sometimes it just works out and they're good friends. So he stood up at the microphone. The second speaker, Sproul, had been off the stage maybe 90 seconds. And he stands up on the microphone. That's what he says. You know, here's the problem with that illustration. There are people who look at that chair and they say, that chair will hold me up. And he said, he looked over off the stage and R.C. was standing on the other side of the stage. And he said, if I understand you correctly, the chair is supposed to be Jesus, right? And he said, yes, yes. Okay, so make sure I understand you. And here's the quote. Here's what he said. There are people who go over there and sit in that chair and they think it's an ugly chair. So ugly they wouldn't put it in their living room. And the place was quiet. And here's his quote. If you want to be saved, you've got to love the chair. You've got to understand the chair to be beautiful. You've got to enjoy the chair. For evangelism, discipleship, growth in the faith, progress in the faith, standing firm in the faith, it's simply helping people to see and enjoy Jesus more. If he's too embarrassing, if he's too ugly, to take the illustration further, if we would be willing to sit in him but we wouldn't be willing to, to put him in our living room, praise God, it's a great diagnostic. We might just love what he offers more than we enjoy him. You haven't yet had the privilege of actually seeing him for who he really is that you might enjoy him for who he really is. We were created not to simply acquiesce to him being the best suitable option, but to enjoy him. And we're given the grace by God and the privilege by God to help one another come to see him and enjoy him more today and tomorrow and the next day. Evangelism is simply helping people who have never seen Jesus for who he is enjoy his worth and enjoy him more. Discipleship is just helping people who have seen Jesus for who he is and trusted him with their whole heart come to see him more clearly and enjoy him more fully. That's all it is. Paul has committed himself to work for the joy of everyone that God puts him in contact with because the overriding principle that is organizing his life and it's the purpose for which we were all created 
is that God would be most highly exalted, glorified, made to be seen as magnificent as we enjoy Him more today, tomorrow, the next day, and forever. Friends, this joy is essential to Christianity. Enjoying Jesus is essential to the chief end for which we were created. Joy in Jesus is what we strive for with one another as we seek to cultivate disciples of Jesus. Friends, God created you for this joy. Jesus laid his life down on the cross for this joy. As pastors and fellow partakers of the grace of God with you, we are working for this joy. As we think about this city where God has placed us and any place that God would send people from this church, it's a legacy of this joy that we want to see established. Why? Because God is most highly exalted. God is most magnified. God is most glorified in your life, in the life of his people, made to be seen for how great he truly is as we enjoy him. That's it. The best news of all is simply this. God has made this joy possible for us through the death and resurrection of his son. The very thing he has created us for, he has by his grace provided for us. See, on the cross, God was doing two magnificent things. God was vindicating his honor vindicating his holiness by justly punishing sin. And at the same time, in his son on the cross, he was providing for our forgiveness and securing for us this joy. God made it possible through Jesus for him to be highly exalted in us by us being most satisfied and enjoying him brilliant. Friends, will you make it your overriding ambition, your guiding purpose, your navigating priority, your great why, whatever you want to call it, that in your life you would enjoy Jesus more deeply today than anything the world could hand out and promise and enjoy him more deeply today and tomorrow so deeply that you love him and enjoy him more than anything that death could threaten to take away. Friends, this is what we were created for. In this joy, God is most glorified. In this joy, Jesus is most highly exalted. Friends, this is what a watching world is longing to see. This is what Paul calls in the letter to the church in Corinth the aroma of the king, the aroma of Christ. It's so attractive. A people who for joy, who for joy, love him more than anything that they could ever imagine. Friends, may we make it our our overriding ambition together that in our life together, Jesus would be highly exalted, that together we would commit ourselves to helping one another 
increasingly enjoy him today and tomorrow and the next day. And to see as many people as God would give us breath to come to know him, see him, and enjoy him more, more than anything they could imagine. Friends, we're going to respond to God's word this morning. Uh, we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect, to pray. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to receive communion together, remembering this joy that God has made possible for us through the life, the death, and the resurrection of his son. We're going to sing. We're going to make much of him because we make much of the things that we enjoy. It makes complete sense for us to make much of God with our mouths and with our lives when we gather together because he is that which we most enjoy. And then we're going to be sent out from here as his ambassadors with this overriding ambition for him to be seen as worth it, for him to be represented well, for him to be highly exalted, and for more people in this city to come to know the deep joy that's found in, in him. So I'm going to pray. Then we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect, and then we'll continue to respond. Father, we thank you this morning that you care deeply, that you care eternally about our joy, and that you, in your wisdom, have woven together the means for you to be most exalted and you to be most glorified and us to find the deepest and most satisfying joy. What grace. This morning, Lord, do in our hearts whatever needs to be done in each heart here this morning to make the overriding ambition of our life to enjoy you, to find you more satisfying than anything else, knowing that in our joy, and in our deep enjoyment of you, you are being exalted in us. That's what we want. And we ask that you, by your spirit, would do that work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.